morning, everyone, and welcome to DataFem, where we engage you with stories of how innovators across the globe are using data to achieve new heights in their respective industries. I'm your host, Danielle, the founder of Decayo Data, and I'm very excited for this episode because it is sponsored by Open Teams. Now, I've known about Open Teams for a little bit over a year now because I ran into one of the co-founders, Travis Oliphant, at AnacondaCon last year when I was a media sponsor. And we ended up talking for a while about what Open Teams does and what DataFem does. And finally, right now, the stars aligned for us to produce this wonderful episode for you featuring two of Open Team's most amazing employees. The first one is David Arulaya. He is the Senior Vice President of Education and Inclusion at Open Team's. And the second guest is Fatma Tarlasi. She is a machine learning scientist and trainer at Open Team's. So we've got a lot of cool backgrounds here to discuss and what will come out is an episode on diversity and inclusion initiatives throughout the data science industry, really as a narrative of what Fatma and David have been working on for the past year to amp up the structured programs at Open Teams and its sister company, Quantsight. So kick back, open your container of Chinese dumplings for breakfast, if you're anything like me, and enjoy this episode. I'm really excited to have both of you here because even though this is supposed to be a diversity, equity, and inclusion focused podcast, I really don't think I've had somebody on the podcast that is has formally that title, and you two do. And I mean, there's a lot of people who I've interviewed who have worked in that space, but it's really cool to hear your story of the work that you've done with Open Teams and Quantsite for the past year. Uh, my name is Fatma Tarajay. I currently work uh, as a machine learning scientist at Open Teams. I also co-chair uh, the diversity, equity, and inclusion committee that we have at Quantsite and Open Teams together with David, who's the other uh, guest in this podcast. Um, previously, I was a uh, in academia for a while, I worked as a lecturer, both in humanities and computer science. And then I spent some time doing some research in AI. And then I transitioned into industry and that's where I am today. I hear you have a bit sure. of a tech background that we'll go into a little bit more later, but um, that's really cool. Is that how you found Open Teams or did you come in through a different avenue? 
I actually started at Quantside, uh, which is our sister company, and Open Teams uh, kind of launched and um, came into being from Quantside. So I started at Quantside um, as a data science fellow, and that was after some graduate work in computer science that I have done and some research that I have done. Um, so I, I thought like it will be um, it will be better for me to kind of leave academia and, and get into industry for various reasons. And it has been about two years and it's, it's going really great. That's wonderful. I feel like data science is a great field to merge both an academic past or present and uh, industry present or future and vice versa. So it's really cool that both of you have that in you. David, do you want to introduce yourself too? My name is David Arulaya. I am the SVP of uh, Education and Inclusion at Open Teams. And this is a bit of a strange uh, shift uh, for me. Uh, I, I mean, I'm inspired in part because I have a sister Natasha, who works in justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, and um, is a very knowledgeable, and I'm very proud of uh, of her and her her work. But it is a bit weird because I'm not really qualified. I'm 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 in, I'm a visible minority. I, I guess I'm I'm South Asian of Sri Lankan Tamil descent, born in the UK, and uh, later emigrated to Canada. I'm actually trained as a, an academic computer scientist and applied mathematician. Uh, I was a university professor in Ontario, Canada for about 11 years. Um, and I left my tenured position to go into industry about six years ago. Uh, and I worked at Continuum Analytics, uh, which eventually became Anaconda. I, and when I left Anaconda, I, I briefly worked at this company called DataCamp. I don't want to go into this in too great detail because that's sort of in the public record and it's kind of a nasty experience. There was you know, a, a sexual harassment incident committed by the CEO with witnesses. Um, when I started there, I actually inherited the workload of the, the, the woman who was harassed out of the company. Uh, and it was handled very badly internally. Um, uh, I raised my voice about this. I was fired, uh, allegedly, for completely different reasons. Um, I was offered an insulting bribe to sign a non-disparagement agreement. Uh, which I passed on. Um, I've spoken of this situation loudly and publicly in spite of empty threats of defamation. Um, and I'm telling, I'm mentioning this experience just solely because in, in part, this is actually what led me to t take on leadership in diversity, equity, and inclusion at Quantsite and, and later at Open Teams. Um, I wanna be proactive in this space because I've seen firsthand how badly a company's culture can suffer when this is an afterthought, right? I was at the first DEI uh, meeting, committee meeting at DataCamp, which uh, happened. And I mean, I, that was before I found out what had happened before I arrived. Um, and it was a really bad situation. And I think that part of the reason the leadership at Quantsite and, and Open Teams sort of uh, pushed me forward in, in leading the stuff is I've, because I've expressed my beliefs around gender inequity in the tech sector quite so loudly. Um, that was something that made me a good choice and a good fit, I think, in uh, at our companies. And we're not interested in doing this just for, you know, something glossy to put on the brochure that, uh, you know, some sort of um, very superficial effort, but something that's actually deep and meaningful and, and, and shows a real commitment from the point of view of uh, the company leadership.
I think it's really important that Data Femme, as a big voice in the data science space, does address these issues. I personally am very passionate about everything you said. I kind of saw it erupt in live time during the Anaconda conference two years ago. Knowing that you were on the inside experiencing it and it's as horrific as the outside perceives it is not surprising, but very important to recognize. Yeah, I mean, this is something that, uh, that is very deeply meaningful to me. I, I, uh, I studied math and computer science as a, as a young man, and, I, um, and these are fields that typically uh, don't have a lot of uh, female participation. And uh, I have friends who have had really horrible experiences who explained them to me as a guy, and I was really horrified by those things. And when I became a professor, I tried to be very thoughtful in my interactions with women students that I taught uh, to recognize the unfair obstacles that they experience uh, relative to all of the male students. And it's really, you know, I, I want to take pride in the fact that I'm an applied mathematician or a computer scientist, and I, I can't do that unless I know, if I don't know that it's not really fair for everybody. I think that's a really important principle. So um, I think I think it's really, something that uh, a lot of people feel as well, but they are less annoyingly vocal about it as I am. But um, it's really important to, sh to have authenticity in, in these kinds of initiatives. And I think that's really something that I really hope we can strive towards in, at, at both Quantside and Open Teams. So before we get into both of y'all's work for the past year together, in more detail. I just want to clarify, how are these sister teams connected? What are their individual roles? So it's a bit of a complicated history. Um, yeah. But I mean, basically, Quant Quantside is a partner organization to open teams. Uh, Travis Oliphant, uh, sort of, you know, who's big from, uh, who's well known from NumPy and SciPy, uh, he and Peter Wang co-founded Continuum Analytics about 10 years ago, and that eventually became Anaconda. And, and I worked with both of them there. Uh, Anaconda sort of uh, shifted in its direction. Uh, so Travis uh, left and spun out Quantside in 2018 as a, an engineering company that provides data intensive consulting and training services built around the scientific Python uh, stack. At the back of his mind, I think, uh, and he can express this more far more clearly, but uh, I mean, there's always been a broader vision about empowering users and developers of open source software in general. And Open Teams was uh, founded later, uh, I think probably 2019 or even 2020, um, uh, with a broader mission of figuring out how to reduce friction in you know, adopting open source software generally in, in business and figuring out how to actually um, help developers and contributors actually do this in a way that doesn't involve them having to starve. So, um, so Fatma and I, Fatma and I still both work for Open Teams, but some of that work is carried out as services rendered for Quantite, which is a partner organization. Um, and and one of those things that we did, uh, you know, up until very recently, and up, I mean, as in the the ink is still wet recently, uh, there was a single DEI committee for Quantite and Open Teams. Uh, but as uh, these organizations have grown and their directions have changed, uh, I mean, Quantite being again being the sort of the Python data stack um, 
uh, engineering type of company and uh, open team sort of a business services, figuring out how to operationalize open source in a, in a broader sense. Um, as the needs of those companies have grown, it was realized that, the, that uh, a real DEI committee needed to be set up at each. And so we've only very recently sort of established the DEI committee at Open Teams, which is um, just uh, trying to sort of get its feet. So how are you defining diversity at Open Teams? So I think for us, uh, having, uh, having Quantsight as, a, as a, a newly established company in a way for the last few years, we had a retreat, company retreat in Austin a couple of years ago before the pandemic. And then one of the talks that I believe, David, it was you, uh, together with some other colleagues, we talked about DEI ethics and, and things that are very important to us as a company. And our committee kind of organically um, got established from that talk and, and meeting and discussions at the retreat. And we have seen a lot of uh, interest from the company, members of the company and employees, as well as full support from the leadership. So that's how the, the committee got started. And then we started establishing some framework around the work that we are doing and educating ourselves, adding more to our knowledge about DEI. And this included some uh, code of conduct writing and um, having different opportunities for the employees to participate and provide them a space to talk about things that might be concerning and things that they might want to be uh, addressed. This was, I guess, all for a collaborative effort that we wanted to establish a great culture at the company and the people that we work are very great and, and very enthusiastic about these topics and we all care about it. We did outreach to a sort of a, a high school in, in the Bronx uh, that sort of has a very large minority population. Um, we've had sort of a DEI reading group. Um, we did an ally skills workshop based on the model the Valerie Aurora from Frameshift Consulting uh, offers. Um, we sort of established a rhythm of quarterly town hall meetings, uh, DEI town halls, where we could try and solicit feedback from the company at large. Uh, and I think coming back to the first part of your question, how do we define diversity? That's a really, that's a really interesting and difficult question. I don't, I don't actually know we have a concrete definition of diversity, um, and it's challenging uh, because of course there's very many dimensions, right? There's always there's very there's more obvious ones of things like gender or uh, race and ethnicity, but then there's other things that are more subtle and uh, you know neurodiversity or sexual identity, disability and religion. Um, there are many other complicated dimensions that that play out in the way that people interact with each other, and and even if ethnicity what diversity means is really difficult to express for a company that is that has that's almost fully remote and we have employees on um, most continents right how do you meaningfully use the term diversity in a conversation where you have people from brazil or estonia or nigeria or colombia as well as you know the united states or canada the uk germany and you know and and other places where um we might have um a different established tradition around those things. So I think uh, one of the things that we have 
found ourselves doing is actually focusing on inclusion first, which is why I think that's in my title, right? I, um, the SVP of Education and Inclusion. I think when one of the things that I've read uh, is that when people feel included and safe, then that tends to be a way that uh, that supports people from underrepresented groups. So they'll tend to be attracted and they also tend to, to stay. I know that it's definitely difficult to come up with one definition for diversity. Just in terms of open source, I feel personally, you mentioned Nigeria specifically, I feel like I've been to Nigeria. I feel like there's a lot of open source projects that people over there are taking advantage of. Um, and that's really exciting because with open source, people who don't have the same access opportunities or you know, just don't fit into the tech world of yesterday, they're able to really weigh in and inform all of us. There's been a lot of talk about diversity within the past year, like y'all mentioned. I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, you were brought on and this work was done kind of from behind the scenes because we weren't having in-person events and there was the option to turn off your Zoom camera. There was the option to even change your name on Zoom if you want, you know, like instead of Danielle Karani or Dikayo Data, I could be Karen Smith, I could be, you know, and that that was really interesting. I know that a lot of your team is remote, so I mean, I guess I'd love to hear your thoughts on well, everything I just said about, you know, how we converse so much about diversity when we were all online. How can we make sure that translates to in person and that the microaggressions that we often encounter in academia or industry both don't just kind of seep their way back in? I think one thing that I can think of uh, along those lines is that uh, as long as like the things that we have gained or learned throughout the past year, if we have made some, if we have taken some actions to kind of like formalize them and materialize them and make people understand things that have come up. For example, one thing that I can think of and I have uh, more frequently um, seen taking place is the discussions around accessibility because our lives going on Zoom and online, we we kind of became more aware that, you know, the tools that we are using are not always accessible to everyone and what we can do about it. So those points are, I think, are polished for a lot of people and for a lot of platforms. And I think that will be, that discussion will continue even when we go into an in-person setting that may not happen for us because our, we are a remote first company, but for others who will be going back to uh, the going back to the office, I think one way of making making sure that those discussions are um, going forward and and making progress is to keep them alive, keep talking about them, and making sure that the people who are in place of authority or or um, have the have the uh, option to make decisions can actually um, step in and, and do something about the things that are not quite uh, right or great in terms of diversity and inclusion. I definitely agree about keeping the conversations going and those conversations can be as casual or formal as we want and happen anywhere. I'm curious to find out if you think that there are more or less challenges or 
difference um, in difficulty of advocating for diversity and inclusion in remote spaces versus in-person offices. Because some, like you said, some teams were always remote. Some teams are hybrid now. Some teams have gone back to full capacity So in the office. So I'm wondering your thoughts on that. Well, I think we're in a bit of a unique situation in that Quantside and Open Teams have always been pretty much remote companies. So the transition for us was minimal in the sense that we were already all remote. You know, I'm, I live in Vancouver in Canada, right? And, you know, there's, a, I mean, even, and even though Fatma is in Austin, I think that she was still basically working at home. And, you know, the, the, the folks who are at the, in Austin, I, I don't think they physically meet all that often. I think, uh, I think a lot of our work is done remotely. So even when the pandemic started, you know, the rhythm of what we were doing didn't shift all that much. And uh, I mean, I think there were other concerns about whether or not our customers were going to stay and things like that. But coming back to the, the, the point that Fatma just made about, uh, you know, accessibility, I think one thing that a lot of companies, that a lot of people, I guess, with, you know, with dis disabilities would, would likely say, you know, uh, that would have been frustrated when interviewing or when looking for positions and being told, oh, you know, you have to show up every day uh, nine to five to, for this gig. And uh, because that's the way it has to be, and we can't do it without that. And of course, when the pandemic started, a lot of companies that had that, that took that stance with people with disabilities, when the problem arose for, uh, for people, for otherwise, for the abled, then, uh, then all of a sudden these, uh, these accommodations were made once it was needed uh, by, the, by the, you know, the, the other majority. And that's a very frustrating thing, right? And so speaking to Fatma's point, um, you know, I think what we need to do is be, be mindful of the fact that, you know, yeah, that was an argument that used to be made and it was kind of bogus. And we should probably stop making that argument, right? Like we, we, should, we should recognize when, oh yeah, when we, people said that and they probably didn't have to say that. And really the reflection that things changed overnight for everybody, but those accommodations couldn't be made for people with disabilities before. Uh, really, that means that the reason we were doing it was not because it was necessary, but it was just because we were you. It was the status quo, and we were always used to doing it this way. And maybe we can accommodate people more, um, more appropriately going forward. Yeah, and that applies not only to leadership, but the type of leadership that we have. I know that. Fair hiring is such a big deal to people working with AI and open source because the people crafting these new models have to be understanding of diverse communities' needs. Otherwise, very harmful biases get incorporated into all of our AI systems. As Dr. Sophia Noble, who was on the podcast earlier this season, says in her wonderful book, Algorithms of Oppression, this can't be taken lightly and issues of ethical AI are a huge priority as much as the innovations themselves. Yeah, it's a unique, it's, it's an interesting problem because it's definitely true that historically 
you know, the free software and open software um, movements and communities as much as, you know, I was inspired by them when I was a student and I, I, I thought deeply about it. There are some problematic characters sort of uh, deeply enmeshed in there. And there is some problematic biases and systematic problems that arise, which are kind of obvious when you think about it, right? So opens people who can, who have the time and the effort to contribute their unwaged labor to open source projects are going to tend to be people who have more wealth and status and power, which means they're going to tend to come from more groups that are historically more privileged and so then you're going to have a representation problem, right? And, and that's fairly obvious when you sort of phrase it like that, but for some reason, this has um, not been given a lot of attention in the past. And it is, it is certainly an issue that needs to be addressed in open source communities. And so there are, um, there is a lot of thought about this that happens at Open Teams and Quantsight in making sure that we're being thoughtful and conscientious and deliberate in our efforts to um, to attract um, you know interns and uh, or uh, people from uh, or uh, job applicants or contributors in all of the you know in all of the projects we do in various commercial and open open source kind of um, projects uh, there has to be some thought into how we actually make sure that we're consciously engaging and being and being aware and deliberate in our intention to engage rather than just sort of shrugging our shoulders and letting it letting it function sort of accord because if we don't if we if we don't think about it and we aren't deliberate then what we end up doing is in i mean and this is well known then we'll end up uh, inadvertently reinforcing the existing trends as they were so I want to ask y'all, in terms of the past year with your work with diversity and inclusion, have you come across situations where several people on a team disagree about the best course of action to promote diversity and inclusion in the workspace? I know that tensions can run high when talking about sensitive issues, and so I just am wondering how all of you reach a good compromise and if there are any ground rules to facilitate that. So I'm not sure if Fatma will agree with me on this. So I'll be very curious to hear her answer. Um, my perception is we, I don't think we've had any intractable disagreements yet. There's certainly been um, conversation, you know, a lot of conversations, how do we do this? And there's been at the committee, we've had, um, you know, discussions about how to make sure that we're hearing everybody's voices and how to make sure we're doing that even at the committee meetings. Um, the thing that I would say, is, I mean, it's inevitable that will happen. Um, what has probably happened is I think, uh, and, and according to my readings, this is something that happens frequently, is you get a self-selected um, minority of people very often who tend to be from marginalized groups who show up at all the DEI stuff. And those are the people who are most engaged and most vocal. And for the most part, I think we seem to have agreed on stuff. So we've got, we've gone forward and we've done stuff, but then there's the, there's a group of people who don't sort of fit into that same kind of profile. 
uh, and you know who are not necessarily from uh, minority marginalized groups. So and then maybe they have the feeling that well the DEI stuff is only for those folks and not for us for for me and so it's not maybe I don't need to go to that or maybe they'll feel that. Um, you know, if I go and I say the wrong thing, then someone will bite my head off. And that is, a, and so it's a challenge for inclusion to, to make sure that, that those voices get engaged as well. So I think in terms of uh, reaching compromises, I, we haven't had a lot of problems yet, but of course I don't, I don't think we've been as successful as I would have liked in engaging all the voices that we want. Um, and I think the, the real challenge is making sure we can figure out how to meet people where they are and finding the right tone and maturity to have these very difficult conversations. I mean, I think one of the big challenges about this kind of work is you're talking about experiences of, uh, of oppression and unfairness and discrimination and, and experiences that different people will have had in different ways and, and not want to revisit. Uh, and some people may not have seen, witnessed it and, and uh, witnessed these kinds of things and don't understand it. And so figuring out how to have conversations about things that are very um, sensitive, emotionally loaded and, and tender, uh, in a, a, and still figure out uh, how to hear each other and how to make sure that we understand each other and we can actually reach uh, resolutions confidently. And it's a really, it's a really difficult thing to do. I can't, uh, and I don't pretend that, um, that I'm any good at this. In our experience at Quonset and now at OpenTeams, we haven't really had uh, an experience that was like, you know, very, created a lot of tension and whatnot. Thankfully, we did not have it. We had uh, a group of people who participated in the committee and, and did work for the committee. And we were kind of like, I guess, aiming for the same goal. Uh, as a committee together as a company at large so that that kind of eliminated some of the issues that could have come up but like David mentioned we try to be mindful of perspectives that may not necessarily align with what we have been trying to achieve or um, how we feel about things I once uh, was talking to someone not at, at the company, an acquaintance that is outside of my company that, oh, we are like, we have formed this DEI committee. I'm so excited about it. This was like at the beginning of things while we were just forming the committee. And then uh, this person, I don't even want to give any demographics or anything, but said, uh, oh, you mean you're, you're creating a brown, girl, brown girls uh, group? I was like, what? <laughs> That was kind of like, that made me realize that there is also this assumption that DEI, like David mentioned, DEI is only for people who feel discriminated or who feel underrepresented. But with that assumption in mind, we tried, at least we tried to be mindful of like including everyone who may not like, you know, think like us or like who might challenge us, which is, I think is a great thing. And along the way, I think every individual who participated in our efforts have been willing to learn more and about DEI and like finding resources. We started a reading group, which will hopefully go continue and like trying to find all this most recent research and, and things that people have been talking about and discussing to inform ourselves so that we have a better understanding of DEI. Um, 
as a larger concept, not only from one or two perspectives. So luckily we did not have um, like any serious issues that I, I can think of. But uh, I know that this is this may not be true for other companies or other places that are working on DEI issues. You obviously have to make conscious outreach. You can't just post on LinkedIn about opportunities and hope that the right people respond. You have to actually, like David said, meet them where they're at. Um, but then you don't want to really promote tokenism through that you know you you have to do it subtly and so there's just a lot of balances that have to be found and both of you discuss that really well it's it's i my my listeners know that i was originally focusing my podcast towards i guess women and mainly women of color and that still is the case because that is who I want to talk to. And I want to talk to anybody who's working um, to make people's lives better in the workplace um, and get more representation. But we also have to have people in the room who are currently in charge and get their respect and attention. We shouldn't have to, you know, we should already have their respect and attention. And so it's kind of, it's it's not fair and that's why i mentioned microaggressions earlier um because i think that does kind of keep us down or feel like we have to fight for something we should already have and that's not fun but i definitely do feel like by engaging people who don't have the same experiences you know with discrimination subtle or not we still need to engage them and make sure that they take our programs and our needs seriously, the fact that a lot of diversity workers like yourselves are also huge powerhouses in tech fields must help for that relatability. As you say, there's, there's, a, there's a connection of that also with the idea of technical privilege and, and uh, in the technology sector. They've, they've been built up in, in popular culture or in, in whatever and how we perceive things as as being these wizards, these magical people that have this, you know, this great technical expertise and who command all of this power in the world. And, uh, and that actually ties into the way that the technology sector functions. It's quite nauseating in a lot of ways. And in some sense, that goes against my, my, um, my philosophy and my spirit as an educator. I think when I teach uh, computer science and mathematics, part of the thing that I'm trying to do is I'm trying to show that it is uh, that it's it's a lot easier than people think, and it's actually really fun and cool and empowering. Um, and there is a sense in which, I mean, Fatma used the word gatekeeping earlier, which I think is, uh, you know, there's an approach to teaching these technical subjects and thinking about these technical subjects, which is uh, that people who have expertise in this have uh, a vested interest in making sure people think of, you know, computing and technology as this, really impossible thing that only the the gifted few can reach because that actually keeps the market small so that their skills are still in demand and they can command a high salary so it's very it's very strange sort of thinking about that uh aspect that sort of the, uh, that economic and social kind of phenomenon and how that ties in with this other these other conversations we have around diversity and equity and inclusion David, I wanted to ask you about 
the need for diversity and the effectiveness of diversity programs in academia versus industry for profit company that you're at now? I know that's a very big question that could be its own podcast, I'm aware. <laughs> but I think that, you know, with your alluding to your strong background as a professor, it would be interesting to hear what comparisons you make in your head about those two different worlds that often overlap through data science. So that's an interesting question, Danielle. So let me, I, you know, I turned my back on my academic career about six years ago, and I did recently participate on a panel at a conference of uh, applied mathematicians who are very, a community who's still very near and dear to me, even though um, there is a degree to which when I left academia, I think it was like leaving the clergy. Um, I felt a lot when I was um, uh, in, in my last days as a professor, like a, a priest delivering sermons to the pews when he'd stopped believing in God. Um, and then I realized it was kind of worse than that. I've it was more like a, a priest delivering sermons to the pews, a Catholic priest delivering sermons to the pews who still believed in God, but stopped believing in the church. So uh, to, to bring that back to your question, though, the challenge of DEI in academia is really difficult because of the entrenched power structures and, uh, and the nature of what academic enterprise is and their priorities and the ways they think about it. It's, it's really a huge challenge. So I, I found when I was trying to have this conversation with some of my former colleagues and my, and my friends, uh, there's still people I, I get along well with, but it was just very strange because, you know, their priorities are about getting grants, uh, supervising students, teaching courses, and they have all, all of these functions of the university and figuring out how to actually fit the stuff that they're doing for their academic profile within the constraints of these organizations. In the private sector, um, we're, you know, we are, you know, we are for-profit organizations and we have other, we have uh, different cycles and things tend to move a lot faster than they do in academia. So the kinds of com and the and the incentives as far as um, dis diversity and equity and inclusion are different in that um, I think one thing that is possibly a, I guess a good thing in industry is that part of the, I think part of the reason that companies are uh, paying attention to this now is they recognise they have to in order to stay competitive, right? So the, what drives a lot of DEI initiatives at companies is that they want to get talent and retain talent. And it is difficult for them to do that if they are ignoring this right now. Um, I don't think the same is true in, in academia. Academia, because it is still like the clergy, still it, it is still like a religious institution in a lot of sense. Um, the things that motivate people to go and pursue careers and a lifelong commitment to those things, to uh, to a, pro a professor or you know the professoriate or the or going to graduate school and things. They're in some sense similar to the things that motivate people to go into the, to become a nun or a, or a priest or a cleric. And those things are deeply embaked on pe in people's minds and culturally on a very different level. So the, the thing about university DEI initiatives as I look at them is they don't seem to have nearly as strong an incentive to to kind of clean things up in the same way it is, as industry does. And maybe that's not true. Uh, and maybe some of my colleagues will uh, dispute me on that. But I, I think that uh, the pressure is different. 
in academia doing this stuff is enough. I mean, I gave up fighting. I thought I spent as as long as my as I could fighting to try and change things in academias in a way that I thought that I could. And I eventually I got tired of tilting at windmills and I thought, okay, that's it. I'm going to go and do something else now. And I met Travis and the rest is history. What you said about there being a financial incentive for companies to respect diversity and inclusion initiatives that academia doesn't really have. I think I've definitely noticed that pattern um, talking to people. So that's definitely something important to address, especially as we go back into in-person events, because data science is so unique. Like we have corporate moguls sitting next to academic experts, professors, students, like, and everybody is at the same conference. Everybody is talking about the same things. And it's just so interesting to have that overlap because they're two different worlds that merge within data science. Fatma, I also have an individual question for you. I know that you are a machine learning and natural language processing expert. And I want to know how that's informed your career at open teams, but also just if you have any advice on how to be a powerful woman in the data science technology field as you are. Um, thank you for this great question, Danielle. So how the first part of your question was asking, if I understand correctly, how did I learn these fields and how did I um, set a foundation in them? So I have, I guess, a relatively unorthodox background when it comes to my formal training. I had uh, received a PhD in comparative literature first before I got into computer science. I went back to school after my PhD and received another graduate degree in computer science. And that's where I started and started learning about NLP, AI, and machine learning and all that. However, because I was coming from a completely different background, I, I really did not have, uh, other than some self-learning, any background in the, in, in the technical field. Um, during the time that I completed my graduate degree in CS, I did not really have a lot of time to take advanced courses and learn everything there is to learn about NLP or AI. What I did and said, by the time I completed the program, I was getting into NLP. That was kind of like a natural drawn for me because I've spent years doing uh, like linguistics and, and language related work. I'm not a linguist, but based on my humanities training, I, I was involved in the um, world of languages in a way. So that kind of sparked my interest to NLP specifically. And I started auditing a course in through the end of my program which was on NLP and then after I graduated I joined um, a research lab an AI research lab where I had a, um, a dedicated mentor who kind of really helped me out about setting setting up a solid foundation in NLP as well as some deep learning material so that really helped me to get up to speed with things that I did not know or I did not necessarily know how to get to it kind of allowed me to get up to a level in a short amount of time because I was directed really well by, by a research scientist. 
So that was my uh, journey, kind of getting into the field and setting an establishment, and and the rest is basically studying, <laughs> and coding, and and working by yourself. I'm I'm I guess um, this has been true for probably my entire life that I'm a, a self learner. I learn better when I do things in my own way. Uh, in addition to formal training, I guess. So that kind of um, a biggest part of bigger part of my learning process in the field and kind of establishing myself in the field came with some formal training and direction and a lot of learning and practice by myself. So going back to again like being a newcomer to the field about four or five years ago, I was uh, absolutely intimidated for some of the reasons that David very eloquently mentioned about academia and being like a in a way a minority in so many levels in academia and in the field of technology or more specifically computer science. Uh, I, 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 I will be lying if I said that wasn't kind of like a little bit scary in the beginning. But what I did, and I think it was a great move on my part, is that based on my you know, experience in graduate school for years and, and doing research and different things. I kind of knew how to navigate my way around to get the help or the network that I could get. And what I did was I uh, started looking into organizations that um, support women and minorities in the fields. And one of these organizations is anitabi.org, which I am... Um, uh, very closely involved in for different in different um, volunteering capacities. In my first year in the field, I went to their conference, and then and I realized that it's not only me who may not necessarily feel like they belong to the field, or they can make it, or they can do as good as the next person who may not be a woman or or a minority. So that really helped me out to to surround myself with a strong network of support. And what I did going forward, I was like, this is great. And I'm not the only one who felt this way going into this field, either as an undergraduate or a graduate student or like a, a professional who changed their fields later on and just getting into tech. So I started doing a lot of volunteering work in terms of mentorship. I um, co-founded and I'm currently co-chairing a mentorship program at NTB.org. And I had uh, a number of mentors. I still do a few as of now and I try to whenever I get the chance to join a conference or like put out some services in terms of volunteering I try to reach out to people and share my experience answer their question and, and try to make sure that they actually they, they the main thing that that they might be missing is, is self-confidence and it's not an easy thing to attain or maintain and that's like I, I try to remind everyone that I come across with or like this kind of issues that they bring up to me. And I say like, you know, look, if, if you do your part in terms of whatever work it takes and if this is what you want to do, there's no reason you should not be able to. And um, I guess that was, that's probably my main take when, I, when it comes to paying back and paying forward to other people. And I try to make myself accessible in different platforms online and offline and people feel uh, comfortable reaching out to me. And yeah, that's, I guess, the main part that I am, uh, that informs my work and the things that I do today. Well, thank you so much, Fatma, for sharing that. I think my favorite part of being a media person in the data space 
is having that bird's eye view that allows me to not only see what opportunities are open around the industry, but also really connect on a daily basis with talented people whom I can recommend. And a lot of times it seems like the people who I do recommend might not have submitted their resume otherwise because they didn't feel like they had the necessary skills or they just didn't get the chance to talk to a recruiter in person. So bridging those gaps is really important for anyone in the field and anyone can have a role in doing that no matter where you stand as a data person. I will say that there are some people in power at companies who do realize that having a diverse team is a necessity, but they don't know where to look because they just haven't been in the habit of looking. Um, And so when that happens, it's usually through a post on social media like Twitter or LinkedIn where I see that somebody is searching to fill a role and is consciously wanting somebody from an underrepresented group to fill that role. And when I see that, I often reach out directly and say that I'm happy to have a conversation about who's who in the data science field and just people I know who are also searching that might not come across these posts because their networks don't overlap. So I think that's a place where social media can really be used for good because it acts as an equalizer to some extent and it's way easier to reach out on social media or have a mutual connection like myself reach out on your behalf than it is to show up at an event and not know what the vibe is going to be or if you're going to feel comfortable So I do believe in the power of social networks online for those purposes. And going along with that, as we wrap up, I would love to hear both of your takes on where you think the future of diversity and inclusion is going. I mean, the good thing is that Open Teams, you know, when we when we put out the call, we had a fairly large group of people sort of all show up very interested and a lot of people raised their hands saying that they would they would like to do something like this. Um, and so one thing that we have to do is then figure out also what are the things that are different because I think part of the thing that we reason that we've we've uh, had this fork out is because it did become clear that the concerns of these two businesses, these two organizations are different because they are different organizations and they have different business visions, they have different, Uh, kind of people have been hired into different roles. Uh, Quantsite is very much more an engineering kind of company. And that has dominated a lot of the way that the DEI conversation has taken shape there. I think at Open Teams, it will be different. And so we will likely, I mean, we will do some of the similar things. We might still share something like a reading group. But I think that as far as the outreach and the, you know, engaging with uh, open source developers and uh, you know, the open source communities and figuring out how open teams fits into that story and, and what kind of things the company will do, those will be driven largely by the committee and by the people at the company. I mean, if I, if I haven't said this yet already, 
uh, one of the things that's really important is to make sure is to have sort of a com combination of a top-down and a bottom-up approach because although I have said it's really important that you get effective buy-in from the leadership uh, to, so that people know that it is something that the leadership takes seriously and that it's not just some volunteer thing that folks are doing outside of business hours on their own time it does need to actually have some buy-in from the company on the other hand uh, there is also importance in it being sort of grassroots and uh, driven from people within the company so that they can actually sort of guide and, and push it forward so that it isn't something that's being mandated from uh, from leadership and they're being told this is how you're going to do it, right? There needs to, you get better buy-in and better um, involvement and engagement with that. So the answer is to be determined, right? TBD. I think as Open Teams, um, we are shaping a lot of things currently and because of the particular role that we are aiming to play in the, in the world of open source we will have particular challenges to resolve and there are many and I, I don't think that those are unique to us or I know that you know different organizations who are working in the in on the issues of DEI in open source are also trying to tackle similar challenges um, I guess on a more company level, being almost like a global company and remote for first company, the things that we will be uh, particularly focusing on, I, I believe, David, is um, some of the one of the things is that gaining more or a better understanding of intercultural dynamics and trying making sure that people who, who whoever that person is is a part of the company and they are they are feeling included. It doesn't matter where they live, who they are, they are here and, and we want to make sure that everyone feels good about being here. And our, all our efforts will entail some sort of um, training and learning as we go. I don't think this process will ever be like complete. We can only do well as we keep, you know, educating ourselves, learning more about the field and learning from our mistakes. This season of Data Thumb started right in the heart of the Black Lives Matter protests. And those are really important to me. Um, and so we did talk a lot about how we can inform people about what, you know, the Black community needs at this time and how we can support the movement, even if, you know, we're allies and if we can't totally sympathize, but, you know, everybody can join together and be really a powerful voice. Um, because people who have experienced any kind of trauma or abuse or discrimination, like we don't want to be the ones to have to explain it to you all the time. And so if other people can educate themselves and, you know, be the ones to kind of be our champions, that's, that's really great. That's definitely what I want more of. How can my data fund listeners stay updated on your work. Um, I know that Open Teams has a Slack. I don't know if that's still happening. Where can we receive updates about the work that you're doing? I mean, certainly a lot of the professional stuff we're doing, the, the outward facing stuff, it'll be on, on our website, um, you know, openteams.com. And uh, some of the stuff that uh, Fatma and I have discussed today were, can be highlighted on there. At the moment, uh, it, it is not. And uh, we have been doing stuff, as I said, mostly sort of internally. And um, 
trying to make sure that we're trying to, that we're doing things to the benefit largely of, of our of our staff and our folks. But I do think that eventually there will be a spill-off. There'll be some knockoff things that relate to our our company mission that will probably be more publicly visible uh, from from our website and our other kind of usual social media accounts. Most of the uh, things that we will be doing, we will be posting them on our website. We will have a blog. We have our Twitter, which will be more actively uh, making it visible to anyone that you want to know about what's going on at Open Teams in terms of DEI will be able to follow. And um, yeah, I guess the, the main source to follow up will be our website. Wonderful. And that site is just simply openteams.com for anybody who wants to go check it out. It's a really cool site. I've been there myself quite a few times. Um, and I think there's just a lot to peruse there in terms of projects and the services they have. Um, and it's just a real kind of collaborative vibe. So it's definitely something that you as DataFem listeners will enjoy. As for DataFem itself, we definitely have more content coming and a newsletter that you can sign up for at decayodata.com if you want to receive updates about this. But for now, have a good rest of this week and I will see you for the next episode.